This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. There have been an unending number of legal threats to the Dakota Access Pipeline since 2016. And the pipeline faces continued threats to its existence even after surviving another shutdown battle in federal court. A federal district court refused to halt the oil pipeline last week, an important win for Dakota Access, but an appeal or agency action could change its fate. Joining me is Brandon Barnes, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst for Energy Litigation. Brandon, tell us why the judge decided not to shut down the pipeline. Well, there's a long underlying history here with the same court and uh, the same judge uh, dating well back into 2016, 2017. But this decision was predicated on the fact the judge didn't believe he had the authority to go so far as to stop the pipeline based on the injuries that were being complained of by uh, the challengers here, which were some of the tribes. Why didn't he think he had the authority? So a number of the issues that the tribes have brought up uh, as it relates to the environmental review that had been done um, that triggered this review to go back to the U.S. Army Corps were possible injuries um, and wouldn't rise, according to the court, to this level requiring a shutdown. So you need an irreparable harm. You need you know, a likelihood that goes along with that in terms of the, the harm that's out there, and not just a possible harm. The, the injuries that, or the potential injuries that were being claimed by the tribes were related to what-if scenarios that are you know, have chances attached to them. They're you know, one in 100,000, one in a million based on industry statistics. So this was a, you know, the likelihood of any of these issues being actually occurring and, and the harm accompanying it actually occurring was so low that the judge couldn't then attach that to the legal standard for putting an injunction in place. The Standing Rock Sioux Tribe has been fighting this for years. Is it likely that they'll appeal this decision? You know, that's a, I don't know that they've come out publicly um, as to that, that question. However, certainly would, would preserve their rights if they were going to appeal. Um, they've, they've essentially won everything they've, they've tried except for shutting the project down. So they have in hand the idea that there is no federal easement here and the, because the environmental review that underpinned the easement for this lake crossing was judged infirm, and they got that confirmed by the Court of Appeals in April. But neither, but the lower court was not willing to go further. To us, FBI, it's unlikely that the Court of Appeals would, would overturn the lower court here because they've kind of gone with what the lower court said to date for the most part. But um, certainly, you know, that may be part of the litigation strategy for the tribes, but it's, in our view, it's unlikely that that's going to be successful. Since 2017, federal judges have issued three different decisions concluding that the Dakota Access Pipeline was permitted in violation of the National Environmental Policy Act. So to most people, the question would be, well, if it's in violation of NEPA, why is it still allowed to go on? That question has been sort of bandied about as a remedy issue back and forth between a couple courts. And it's an interesting question because it's not, you know, you're right. Typically, you know, NEPA violation is pretty easy to kind of address. And that's where the court, the lower court had originally tripped up because what we're talking about here isn't necessarily a permit, but it's actually a, it's a, you know, it's a land right, it's a property right 
because it's an easement. The federal government owns Lake Oahe because they created it back in the 50s via, uh, you know, a dam. And so the permission to go underneath that lake and use that path via an easement or a land right grant goes through a different um, regulatory structure under Army Corps. And so what in fact has happened is even though there's NEPA violations, there's a process that Army Corps has to decide what happens to an encroachment, which is, you know, basically an illegal easement. You're on our land with something, some structure without permission. And so what Army Corps decided to do is nothing. And what that does is if they make no decision on what to do with an encroachment, then there can be no sort of legal ramifications after the fact. And that's something the judge lamented in his opinion most recently. How does the Army Corps just decide not to do anything? Don't they have a responsibility? Well, so they they certainly do uh, have a duty to do something. But their take on this is revolved around, look, you ordered us to go back and redo this environmental assessment and turn it into a much more robust environmental impact statement. And that's going to take time. In fact, it's going to take us until March of 2022 at this point. So why don't you let us do that and then decide what to do? And, you know, that's sort of a, it's a good argument because it leaves the court and the challengers saying, well, you know, we can't force you to make that decision on the current status of when we forced you to make another report. So, and, and more robust. So the interesting thing here, I think with all of this is that there has been no real change in heart with the change in administration uh, in terms of how Army Corps has responded, saying that they will still continue to support their stance, which is sort of a status quo, do nothing stance. But they have said that if something comes up in this more robust process, they're certainly willing to revisit. So the judge sort of scolded the Biden administration for refusing to take a clear stance on the pipeline. I had thought, maybe I have my pipelines confused, I had thought that in his first days in office, Biden had issued an executive order about the Dakota Access Pipeline. He issued an executive order rescinding the Keystone XL permit, uh-huh. um, which was well within his powers to do so because he's basically doing the mirror image of what uh, President Trump had done for Keystone, uh, which is exercising executive power to issue a permit to cross the border for an energy project. Uh, and by circumventing sort of the U.S. State Department process, which President Trump did to issue that March, I think, 2019 permit, presidential permit, um, that set that permit up for being able to be rescinded by President Biden with very little uh, procedure or oversight around it. Um, that is not the case with the code access, because right now we're not in a place where yet, you know, Army Corps can do something because they they've got this pending environmental review on their plate. Um, so they could have taken more of a stance in front of the court here, uh, but they did not. And maybe that's sort of in deference to the work that the Army Corps has done over the years anyway. According to analysis last week by Clearview Energy Partners, it said Dakota Access opponents could also get creative in the courtroom and raise an Administrative Procedure Act claim that challenges the Army Corps' inaction in response to the encroachment on federal land. Is that a possibility in your mind? It, I think it is. I think so. The form they could more formally raise that as an issue. Um, it is. It has been discussed at the lower court. 
as but only part of the remedy phase. So it's really, you know, it's kind of we're talking about legal shades of gray here. Um, but to really get at and get a ruling, a final ruling from court on the issue of Army Corps not moving fast enough or moving at all, um, they would have to file that sort of as a separate claim instead of within the remedy portion of the lower court in this bigger case. Uh, you know, I think you could do that, but the Army Corps is going to be given a lot of uh, leeway here in the fact that they've got a pending environmental review that they're doing, and that's going to give them a much better set of information and data to work with because it's supposed to be more robust. Um, but the environmental groups have been, you know, this this case and, and many others involving pipelines have been very creative, and they have not shirked on uh, spending the resources on these different cases. So I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. Uh, I would not give it a great odds of success at this point, kind of thinking it through theoretically, though. So was this lawsuit the greatest threat to the pipeline? Uh, yes, in, is the short answer. Uh, at, the, at, at, at all points, this was really the, the threat because it reaches all the way back to pre-construction and permitting. Um, now that this is sort of out of the way, although obviously appeals are available, uh, the newest threat is what happens with uh, President Biden administration, Army Corps, when they get the chance to do take over this environmental impact statement. How does that play out? They've mentioned this is going to be probably at least until March of 2022, until we see anything from them in terms of a, a final decision, but they've got a lot of work to do before them, which includes consultation with uh, various parties, including the Native American tribes. And they've got a lot of public comment to take. So that process is going to play out, and there's a lot of uncertainty there around what the end product will look like. And, and so now the biggest threat is probably outside of the courts. It's now back in the agency hands. So let me ask you this. The Army Corps of Engineers... I sort of think of the Army Corps of Engineers as being not partisan. But does their position change depending on the administration or the way they approach things change? You know, Juna, I would have thought of a lot of different agencies nonpartisan uh, before the past few years. <laughs> uh, I feel like we've had a, a bit of a seismic shift on that, if you think of what's happening with FERC these days uh, as well. But, you know, Army Corps has been involved in this pipeline since before it was built, and just based on who was in office pushing the button or directing Army Corps policy, we had a change at the snap of a finger uh, between the Obama administration and the Trump administration in terms of what was being ordered done on the ground for these environmental reviews. And, you know, for Army Corps, they're really just, these are procedural changes, not necessarily substantive decision-making changes, but you know, those can, those can mean a lot of uh, different things for these projects once those play out in the courts after the fact. So I think I, I would never say that Army Corps is partisan, but I think that they have the ability to look at something like an environmental review and the information that comes in from a different angle if, they need, if, if they're directed to, which I think I wouldn't be surprised if that's how this administration would, would kind of want them to go. So, bottom line, we can say that the Dakota Access Pipeline is in the clear for now until the spring of 2022? I think that's right. I think bottom line, they're in the clear. 
uh, until at least then, and then uh, you know, and then it's back into the uncertainty around around shipping anything via pipeline these days. Very difficult to uh, to be able to kind of get any certainty out of the midstream world. Thanks so much for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Brandon. That's Brandon Barnes, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst for Energy Litigation. The Supreme Court sided with the government on Monday and found that an immigrant who was wrongfully deported in 1998 can be charged with re-entering the country illegally. Joining me is Leon Fresco, a partner at Holland and Knight. The facts here are a bit confusing. Tell us about the applicant here, the plaintiff. Sure. So the plaintiff was a man named Refugio Palomar Santiago, and he was a person who had a green card when he lived in the United States. But what happened was he was convicted of a felony driving under the influence charge, which back then was thought of as a crime of violence. So it was considered an aggravated felony. And because of that, he was deported to Mexico and he was deported to Mexico in 1998. But then what happened was, in 2004, there was a U.S. Supreme Court case called Leocal versus Ashcroft, which said that a driving under the influence conviction isn't a crime of violence because you're not intending violence. Yes, violent acts may happen with your car while you're driving under the influence, but the person really only intends to drink and drive. They don't intend to actually hurt somebody. So you can't call that a aggravated felony crime of violence. And so what happened was this person's conviction, Mr. Palomar Santiago, was actually no longer the basis for a removal order, meaning had Mr. Palomar Santiago not been removed, they wouldn't have been able to remove Palomar Santiago because the conviction wasn't a proper basis for his removal. So we fast forward, and in 2017, Mr. Palomar Santiago actually crosses illegally into the United States, and he's prosecuted for this. And they say you can't cross the United States illegally if you've already been deported. That's a crime. And so what happened was he tried to make a very creative defense, which was, wait a second, I wasn't deported because the deportation order against me was invalid. If you had tried to enter this deportation order now, there's no way you could have entered it. And so because of that, there is no way I should be allowed to be prosecuted for entering illegally with a removal order because I don't have a removal order. So tell us what the Ninth Circuit ruled. So what happened was there's a split in the circuit and every other circuit held that you can't challenge a prosecution on the basis of illegally reentering with a removal order if you are saying that it's because the removal order in the past was now subsequently invalidated by a Supreme Court decision. So that's what the other circuits held. But the Ninth Circuit held that, yes, you can. You can challenge that order because what had happened was the conviction being vacated makes it so that there actually is no removal order to challenge, meaning you're not actually challenging a removal order. There just is no removal order. It doesn't exist. Hence, 
what happens is you can't be prosecuted for entering with a removal order because the removal order has already been eliminated by operation of law. That was the theory that the Ninth Circuit had put in to play. And so the Supreme Court needed to resolve the circuit split. I know there's a circuit split, but it seems like this scenario wouldn't apply in that many cases. It depends, because it currently doesn't apply in a lot of cases. And now, because of this Supreme Court holding, it won't apply in many cases. But interestingly, if the Supreme Court had held that you can re-enter the United States illegally in order to sort of reclaim your green card status because your removal order goes away, you might have seen several thousand individuals try this because there's a lot of people who have been deported who subsequently, because of this Leocal drinking and driving case, and then there are subsequent cases involving drugs and burglary and possession of, of tools and this kind of thing. There's a lot of people, I would say at least in the tens of thousands, who have been deported from the United States in the past with orders that are now no longer valid removal orders. And so if what they would have gotten was a message that would have said, just enter the United States, find some way to enter, then that's how they would have done it, to try to reclaim their green card status instead of trying to follow a more formal process, which is what's known as the motion to reopen process, which gives discretion to the Board of Immigration Appeals to either grant it or not grant it. And so that's the issue is that is not a certain thing. It requires discretion. Whereas if this decision had been decided in favor of the foreign national, then it would have been a guaranteed thing that if you enter the United States, you're triggering back your green card because the basis for saying that you can't be convicted under the statute is that you don't have a removal order, meaning you automatically got your green card back. So tell us what the Supreme Court decided. So what the Supreme Court decided was that the statute, the way it's written, which requires three different elements in order for someone to challenge a removal order as part of one of these prosecutions, is a very clear statute. And that statute requires all three things to be done by the person who's challenging it. Number one, that they had to exhaust any administrative remedies that they had before challenging it, meaning that when the removal order was first given, they had to appeal the removal order to the Board of Immigration Appeals. Second, that the removal proceedings improperly deprived them of the opportunity for judicial review, meaning not only did they have to appeal to the Board of Immigration Appeals, they actually had to take a petition for review in the Court of Appeals and lose that too. And then three, that entry of the order was fundamentally unfair. And so they had already won under that third prong that it was unfair because obviously the court decided that the basis for the removal order no longer existed, but these individuals had lost under the first and the second prong, as will everyone else, because everyone who's gone through the criminal process will have had an opportunity to administratively exhaust their remedies and go to the court of appeals. And so from that standpoint, what the court is basically saying is, this isn't the way we want you to challenge uh, a, a removal order that became invalid. 
What we want you to do is to file these motions to reopen in the Board of Immigration Appeals. We don't want you just sneaking in the country and then saying your green card has been returned because you snuck into the country. So now, is it surprising that this was unanimous and that the majority opinion was written by Justice Sonia Sotomayor? The reason I think this ended up being a unanimous opinion is for two reasons. One, I do think there's a desire amongst the members of the court, given how polarized things are, to try to compromise in cases where compromise is available. And here, all the court really did is say the statute says what the statute says. If you want to come back later and sue on a theory that it's unconstitutional in a particular case because it's so unfair that this person should have an opportunity to get their green card back, do it. But what you can't do is do what the Ninth Circuit said and say that the statute doesn't really mean what it means. Yes, it does. And so if you think that the result is an unconstitutional, draconian result, you can come back and sue and say that and say The result here was unconstitutional because it's so draconian, it violates due process. You can do that, but what you can't do is reinterpret the meaning of a very clear statute. And so that's why I think you saw the 9 to 0 is the the ruling ends up being very, very narrow. It doesn't go into the constitutional realm. It leaves that for another day. And two, it provides a sign of good faith from the more liberal wing of the court we will join you when we can. We're asking you on a future case to join us when you can. And I think you've seen that in a couple of these other immigration cases where you've had Justice Gorsuch uh, reach out, where you've had Justice Roberts reach out, where you've had Justice Coney Barrett reach out. And so I do think you're seeing some of this horse trading going on in the immigration realm. This case spanned the Trump and Biden administrations. And the Biden administration has changed positions in several cases, but not in this case. Why do you think it chose not to change positions in this case? I think for the same reason that Justice Sotomayor wrote the opinion here, which is that the statute is clear. So when you have a statute that's clear, the Department of Justice, even if they don't like what the statute says, has an obligation to defend a clear statute. There is a separate question as to whether the statute is unconstitutional, but the way that should be resolved, in my view, especially by this Department of Justice, is to just instruct the Board of Immigration Appeals, whenever you have a motion to reopen on the basis of a conviction that no longer is valid, you should reopen the case and give the person their green card back. And that's the way they can solve that, and they should issue that guidance. I would encourage them to do that. And that way, you eliminate this horrible, perverse incentive for the way people to get their green card back would be to sneak across the country. What are the long-term implications here as far as federal prosecutors? Are they more likely to pursue criminal reentry charges? Yes. I think now what you will see is that as the immigration enforcement portfolio moves away from the interior— because the Biden administration doesn't want to be deporting people who have roots into the United States. And as that portfolio moves to the border, what you will see is more of these prosecutions in cases where the government has spent resources in trying to already remove someone from the United States. And what I think will be key is this balanced perspective where you say, 
the reason we're doing this is because you have this other avenue available to you. And so you should have used this other avenue. You shouldn't be sneaking across the border. That creates all kinds of problems when people try to sneak across the border that we'd rather prevent. Has there been a difference in enforcement under the in immigration enforcement under the Biden administration? Absolutely. There has been a huge difference in enforcement. And in fact, there's actually some new stories today about this difference in enforcement, about how the numbers are at historic lows with regard to interior enforcement, meaning people who are living in the United States being placed into removal proceedings and being removed outside of the United States. You're seeing dramatic decreases in that, almost historic decreases that you haven't seen for 20 to 30 years on that frame. There used to be this rule of thumb that ICE would or should or could deport 400,000 people per year And we're talking about maybe 40,000 this year. So it's a dramatic decrease in the number of people being removed from the United States. And we haven't heard much lately, maybe because there's so much other news, but we haven't heard about the situation at the border. Is Is it still untenable at the border? Well, the complication with the border right now is that the processing of individuals is actually moving much faster than it used to. And so it becomes a more complicated debate because then the debate becomes solely about are the numbers of individuals showing up at the border unacceptable vis-a-vis some desire to keep that number down to zero. But it's not a problem anymore in terms of the processing speed of getting people out of facilities that have terrible conditions. That's moving quite quickly through the process. And so there's nowhere you can film as a video crew to show a border catastrophe right now. And that is actually creating quite a political conundrum because you have individuals on one end of the political spectrum saying, yeah, but that doesn't matter. There's still going to be over a million people coming here illegally entering the United States this year. And so they'll make from a numerical perspective a claim that that's unacceptable. And you'll have other individuals saying, what is the problem? They're going to go through the system And hopefully they will show up to court, and if they win, they'll stay, and if they lose, they'll be deported. And so that will be the argument on the other side, and it will just be up to the American people to decide if that's the way they wanted the southern border to be processed or not, because that's basically what we're setting up to have happen for the remainder of the year. A million compared to what in other years? So historically, talking about the 90s and the first decade of the 2000s, that was what we were seeing. We were seeing about a million people being apprehended trying to cross the border. Those numbers decreased dramatically, both under the Obama administration and the Trump administration, as different wall mechanisms and fencing mechanisms came to play, and 20,000 border patrol people were installed into the southern border and so those numbers had decreased and then COVID had made it dramatically decreased and so it just depends what you're using as your baseline if you're using the last year of the trump administration well then certainly that's going to be a huge difference because in the last year of the trump administration we were talking about 100,000 or so people being allowed to enter through the southern border uh, and make their claims so we were not talking about a lot of people But if you just reverse it to the first year of the Trump administration, we were talking about maybe four or five hundred thousand people. So it just depends what you're talking about. Now, it is greater 
than any year during the Trump administration. That's certainly true. But it's not greater than it used to be under the Bush administration. And so the question is just what is your historical perspective for this? And finally, are there any other immigration decisions uh, coming from the Supreme Court this term? Not this term, but I think in the future you're going to be looking out, I think, for the DACA litigation, which is going to be the big litigation that's coming, uh, that's going to be coming. And then as some of these, you know, the, which will come from Judge Hayman in the uh, Southern District of Texas, and he invalidates DACA, and then that works its way up to the Court of Appeals of the Supreme Court. So you'll be seeing that litigation. And then you'll also be seeing some other litigation moving forward on these issues of states challenging what the Biden administration is doing in terms of its prosecutorial discretion on immigration enforcement. And so those we'll be talking about those in the, in the upcoming months. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Leon. That's Leon Fresco of Holland and Knight. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.